We missed it. And looking down the road and seeing the church and started getting excited knowing that we we're going to get to see you all. So it's really good to be here with you guys to see your faces. And so Rob asked to give a little report where we're at. Um, you know, first, let me say thank you. I mean, thank you for the church for, I know you guys have prayed, prayed for us faithfully, that you've given to us generously. And maybe best of all, you guys, this last year sent a team and got to spend a week with us to see a little bit what our home looks like, a little bit of the, see our church, our friends, you got to serve within the church, and um, learned of my great love for french fries. And, um, so it was, it was really, really great receiving you guys, and it was such a blessing to us and such a, I don't know, it was great to have you guys. We always love when people from our home come and visit our new home, so it was it was great. So thank you guys for allowing them, uh, spouses, your pastor, and others to come and spend some time with us. And so over, man, um, you know, with this pandemic that hit, like it's obviously hit travel hard. And so it just has made things rough for us. And we were scheduled to come home and be with you. I guess we were supposed to get home, what, a couple weeks ago, maybe something like that. Um, but many of you know, I know my mom's on the prayer list. We got a, I got a call on Friday morning from my dad and just said, just letting you know, your mom's in the hospital. It doesn't look good. And so we were in a tough spot. It was right when, um, things were starting to shut down in Argentina and well around the, everywhere, I guess. Um, but we got that call on Friday and so we had to make a decision because we looked, did a little bit of research on the airlines and everything was going to be closing Sunday at midnight. And so it was either we had to make the decision to go ahead and come back home or who knows how, I mean, Argentina is still shut down completely. So it would have been, it was either a now or never kind of decision. So we ended up, got that call Friday morning, Friday night, we were at the airport and on our way back. And so it's kind of unexpected and unfortunately, um, just with how everything played out, we were really excited about the the coming six months between when I got that call and when we were going to be coming home when the pandemic hit because we had a lot of great things lined out with another church coming from Ninth and O to teach on small groups specifically. Had a couple more trips planned um, up in the mountains to meet with the pastors and teach among them. We had met with some college interns at the church and we were going to be going on the campus there in Cordoba and we had a meeting with them and literally the next I don't know if it's the next day or the second day okay thank you Malachi <laughs> apparently the second day everything was closed down the university was closed down and everything was put in in jeopardy unknown and so we ended up coming back and it's been, it really has been great to be here for an extended amount of time and just so many things. Um, so many, you start missing so many people, you start missing your family. And so being able to spend extra time with them, being able to um, do things here that we're not able to do in there. Like my son played baseball has been 
awesome to watch him and to coach his team and to spend time with family. Um, we've had the opportunity to um, preach in, in our home church. We've had the opportunity to, um, I guess, be in a little Bible study with you guys. And we've, uh, we have planned, we still have um, trips planned to go to Louisville, to St. Louis, and then up in northern Illinois to visit supporters and friends. And, and so it's been a time of refreshment. It's been a time of being able to um, obviously um, do the things and even some hobbies like fishing. It's been good to fish. Um, but being able to do things that we haven't been able to do and to um, deepen friendships, deepen partnerships. And so it's been really good. But we ask you for your prayers because... There's so much uncertainty right now. There's we're we have tickets to go back in January, um, but who knows? We have Argentina has said that unless until there's a cure, they don't expect travel to resume to international travel to resume. And so, I mean, you can get emergency flights in and out, but in terms of returning, we don't know what that looks like. We don't know, and so we are in a state of waiting in a state of trusting in the Lord that he will show us what he has for us when we'll get to go back. If we get to go back, like it's kind of up in the air and um, there's a lot of uncertainty. So um, I don't know anything else that I should say, honey. So I'll, let me pause. I know that's not a great, we don't like, basically I told you like we don't know what's going on. And it's unfortunately that's the, yeah, yeah that's the, I mean, that's the state that we're in and it's, and it's tough. I mean, especially living with a type A goal-oriented person that wants to see things happening. <laughs> it's tough whenever those things don't fall into place and you don't really know what's going on. And, you know, we're asking ourselves, like, what does the Lord have for us during these times? What is he wanting to teach us? How can we serve him? And it makes it, I mean, it just makes it tough all around because we want to plan for we want to plan for what the future has, but we have no idea what that looks like. And so it's it's been tough on that front. So well, let me pause, and I'll be happy to field some questions. Yes, sir. Um, I assume you're still in communication with those in Argentina now with your team? Or? Yeah, yeah, we, we chat. Um, I mean, it's not daily by any means, but we check in on each other every week, every other week, just to see how things are going. Um and I'd like to say to see what's new, but that conversation's been the same the last few times that we've talked in terms of what's new. Not much. We got to take a walk around our neighborhood. That's about as, as exciting as it's been for them. So, so you yeah. still have your home and everything's still there, your belongings, so your life our, is still there. Our belongings are still there. We're, we have a friend that's staying with us. Yeah, our, we're still paying rent. That doesn't go away. And so... Um, <coughs> Yeah, and that's a big one. Serious, yeah. our dog is still there. So <laughs> we have friends that are watching him, taking care of him. So he's in, he's living his best life. He's living with two other dogs. So he's he's <laughs> he's good. He's happy. I'm sure he doesn't miss us too much, but we miss him. <laughs> Brandon, as far as like church service and everything, is it kind of like here? It's all getting back to at least meeting together, or are they? No. They're not meeting together at all. Um, small groups aren't meeting together, and they're they're still, yeah, they're still unable to meet. And I mean, the bad thing is, I just, I mean, in the news just this past week, they reported that Argentina's had the worst 
was hit. This was this last week was the worst week in terms of cases and deaths. So, and then the government announced that they were going to be announcing in the next couple of days the steps that they were going to take to curb that. And so, yeah, yeah, they're. Yeah, and, the, and from the communication that the pastors have had with the congregation and everything, they're careful and they're adamant to want to follow the guidelines that are put forth. And I don't know, that raises a whole other other questions and how long can you do that and, you know, how long is it responsible to Argentina and our fellow man, but then at some point, when does it become do not neglect meeting together? And so... I mean, be praying for the church and our churches in Argentina as well because it's it's a difficult choice. They want to be a good witness around them. They don't want to lose the testimony, but at the same time, you cannot not meet for two years. So it'll, I mean, right now, they're content on staying the course, but I would imagine that at some point they have to start asking the difficult questions of when do we need to go against what the authorities say. So while we were shut down, you know, Rob was able to use Zoom and things like that to continue on. Do do they have that capability? There? Yeah, yeah, they have that capability. And so usually they have, you know, they'll still, they'll stream a service via Zoom on Sundays. And, or YouTube. Or, yeah, YouTube. Maybe it's not Zoom. It might be YouTube. But there's... Um, like there's still groups and meetings that happen via Zoom and stuff like that. So I mean they are able to stay in contact, but you know, as all of you know and probably experienced, it's not that's nice, but it's not the same. It's seeing each other face to face. Do they have a government that helps take care of the poor people, or is that just really damn hard on them? Even harder probably than the poor people in the state. Yeah, the government's more is more of a socialist government with the president that's in there now. And so there's programs and stuff that do it, but the poor there is so much greater than here. That's what makes America's economy so good, right? You have such a large middle class, such a large working class, and you just have so much more. You don't have that same ratio in Argentina. You got a larger poor class, you got a middle class, and then you got an upper class, but it's just not, it's not the same. So yeah, there's, I don't know. I mean, I guess every government has, for you know, is forced to think through these things. But there are a lot of a lot more like mom and pop shops in Argentina. Like whenever you go there, if you, that's so annoying. If you need to go around and do shopping, you'll go to a carnicería. You'll go to a, like a butcher shop. Then you'll go to a fruit shop. Then when you go to buy, if you need stuff for the house, you'll go to a hardware store. But they don't have these things at this hardware store. And so you got all these different shops that you go to. And so a lot more mom and pop shops, and those are the ones that are really struggling and a lot of that are closing down. And so, you know, their government's patting themselves on the back because they shut down the lockdown quickly, but at what cost? I mean, whenever your businesses are going down and everything and you have an economy that's already averages 35 to 40% inflation every year. And... So you got an economy that's struggling and then this hits. So it's definitely tougher for the smaller businesses and things like that.
And so, yeah, you got a government that's a socialist government that tries to help the poor, but you got a government that's in bad shape trying to do that. So, so the businesses aren't allowed to do what ours here to where they want that drive-up service or delivery or things like that. Well, they st I heard that they started doing that. Like cafes started opening, some of those smaller shops started opening with precautions in place, and so I'm not sure with this last week and with the president announcing he'll you know in a couple of days say what the plans are for you know controlling the spread of it I don't know what that's going to look like but they started to reopen some things um, but I don't know what, what next week is going to look like you said you'd gone to the mountains how are the people there doing are they struggling with food and Oh, have like since the pandemic? No, we haven't. We weren't able to go. I was, I was saying that's what I was saying. Like there were, we came home early, but in between March and when we were supposed to get back in August, like we had a really exciting six months planned, and within that, there that was the trips to the, and see that I mean that's another problem that we're going to face is even when travel is allowed. Are we going to be allowed to go into those more remote places, especially being from the United States, you know, and they see the statistics in the country that's hit the hardest and they're going to, I don't know what travel will, will look like or might look like whenever we're allowed to end Argentina. Are we still going to be able to travel to those remote places? All right, well, I promise you um, the Christian church is going to beat you to monocles today. <laughs> but it's not my fault. Um, all right, let's, let's pray real quick, ask God's blessing, and then we'll jump in. Lord, we, we thank you for this time, Lord, of being able to come together, Lord, to be able to sing songs to you and praises to you, Lord. We, we thank you that you have loved us, Lord, you have provided your son, um, and you provided a way to salvation so that we may know you, that we may know Christ. And so we thank you for that, Lord. We pray for this time um, together in opening the word. We pray that you would be um, glorified in it. Help us to make much of Jesus. Lord, I pray that you prepare our hearts, that you would um, help us to understand what is preached. Help us to let it sink into our hearts. And Lord, we pray that it would, that we would leave here not quite the same, but we would be uh, we would leave here a little bit more like your son. And so we pray that he is made much of in this time, Lord. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Amen. All right. So if you, do I need to speak into this? Yeah. Is it being recorded? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it seems like it's not real loud. Does anyone else have trouble here? What? You're just getting old. <laughs> no, you're getting old. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> or the... The both. All right, go ahead and flip to the book of Hebrews. Initially, I plan on preaching through a about a portion of five verses, but I, as I started studying, as I started going through it, it became preaching through the whole book of Hebrews. But don't worry, like we're not. It'll we'll be moving quick, but it'll be exciting. That you'll get a little bit of a taste of what it looks like whenever we travel up into the mountains and we ever when we um, teach or we preach with the pastors there. Usually. Um, we're going through like we're doing an Old Testament survey or we're doing a New Testament survey. And so we're going through the entire book. And so as I started studying, as I started going through it, I started preparing. It just kind of ended up turning into that. So I'm excited um, to go through Hebrews with you. 
And as you're turning to Hebrews, um, and if whenever you get there, we'll be going fairly fast, going through um, a lot of the a lot of the book together. So just try to follow along. We'll go in order. Um, but as you're turning there, let me tell you about three people. Two of them, maybe you've heard of. They're they were fairly well known in the evangelical circles, and one's more of a personal example. But the first man that I want to tell you about, he was a hero to the Christian fathers in the 1990s. And at the same time, he was the arch enemy of teenagers, especially boys. And so I am talking about Joshua Harris. Joshua, and that'll all make sense here in a minute. But Joshua Harris was born in 1974 to a Christian family, raised in a Christian home. He was homeschooled, heard the gospel, was taught the gospel. And he grew up a young man, zealous for his faith, and at the age of 21, he authored one of the, at the times, one of the best, or was the best-selling book. He sold 1.2 million copies. And for this, I say he was the arch enemy of teenage boys in this time, because that the title of that book was I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And it was talking about sexual purity. It was talking about the pitfalls and dangers of dating. And so with the release of this book, this instantly shot him into kind of, he was well known in the evangelical circles and a man named C.J. Mahaney took notice of him, took him under his wing. He discipled him. He groomed him. And he started grooming him to be the lead pastor of Covenant Life Church. And Joshua Harris was the lead pastor there from 2004 to 2015. And this was the church that was the founding church of Sovereign Grace. And so he went on from the time that he wrote his book at 21 and through his pastor, he authored several other books dealing with his engagement to his wife, um, books on sex and lust, a book on falling in love with the local church, loving the family of God, and even a book on theology, his love for it, and the importance of it. And maybe some of you know the story where I'm going with this. In 2018... He dis disavowed everything that he wrote in his dating books. In 2019, he divorced his wife. And later on in 2019, he walked away from the faith and claimed that he was no longer a Christian. Another example, Marty Sampson, Australian-born, that same year in the summer of 2019, also tweeted that he was losing his faith and was leaving the Christian faith. This was a man, maybe you've heard of Hillsong United. He was one of the lead worshipers of Hillsong United, wrote dozens and dozens of worship songs. Have He led hundreds of thousands and probably millions in worship. And like Joshua Harris in 2019, left the faith. And more of a personal example, we went to Southern Seminary, as um, your pastor did, and one of our best friends that's there, her and her former husband moved to Louisville because they too were going to Southern Seminary. But instead of being more grounded in their faith, instead of growing in the Lord, they... I don't even know the whole story, but they ended up started going to a more liberal church and little by little got further and further away from the gospel. And at this point, they would not say they're Christians and even have 
probably a little bit of resentment or bitterness to other Christians and to the church. And so let me just put this disclaimer before we go on. I do not think that you can lose your salvation. I do not believe that Joshua Harris or Marty or our friend, I don't believe that they lost their salvation. I don't think that the Bible teaches this at all. I think that from them falling away, from them not persevering, that they have proven that they are either um, a, the rocky soil or a the thorny soil, that they heard, they got excited, they fell away, or they heard, but then the worldly desires or the um, pressures from society caused them to go away from the faith. I believe that the Bible is clear and it teaches that true believers are a new creation, that the old has passed and the new has gone, or the new has come. God makes us a new creation, and whenever this happened, a heart transplant takes place, right? That a heart of stone that we currently had, a heart that is self-serving and not, not inclined to love the Lord, is replaced with a heart of flesh, a flesh that wants to glorify the Lord, the, uh, a heart that wants to serve Him, and I also believe that, the, that God the Father holds all of his children in his hands and will not let any of them go. So it's not a question of whether or not we can lose our salvation. It's a question on not whether or not God can lose a Christian. And also, I think that it's very clear through all the writings of Paul and in, our, in the book of Hebrews that it is clear that true Christians will persevere till the end, that they will continue the fight and that they will continue and finish the race. And so the reason that I mention these examples of Marty Sampson, Joshua Harris, is I think that we would be naive to think that this is not possible for our lives. To think that there are none among us that could possibly prove to be of rocky soil and fall away, or that there are none of us that could be of thorny soil and be choked by the desires of the world, it is possible. And so the question is, how do we fight this battle of unbelief? How do we persevere in the faith? How do we continue to live lives that are faithful to the Lord? And what are the means that the Lord has given us to fight the good fight and to finish the race so we do not end up like the examples given? And so for this reason, this is the reason that the author wrote is the book of Hebrews, why he wrote the letter to the Hebrews, to persevere in the faith. And in his book, Kingdom of the Cults, Dr. Walter, Walter Martin quite humorously says this when asked to describe the book of Hebrews. He says, the book of Hebrews was written by a Hebrew to other Hebrews to tell them to stop acting like Hebrews. <laughs> and so what does he mean by this? What does he mean by this? And so just like any other letter of the Bible or any other gospel that's in the Bible, it was written by an inspired author, right? But it was written to a specific group of people. It was written with a purpose. And so obviously the book of Hebrews was written to a Hebrew-believing community or a Jewish community, all right? But this was a community that was in crisis. And so although they had endured persecution and although they had gained a reputation for um, a reputation for sacrificial service in their lives and within the church, um, the author was concerned for them because there were difficulties that were mounting and they were considering abandoning the Christian faith and returning to a Christless Judaism. 
And so the author calls them slow to learn, and he repeatedly urges them, whenever I read through and I tried to mark it every single time that I saw it, I counted at least 16 times where there was a command or an encouragement not to turn away from the living God. And let me pull up here, and I'll just run through and share some of these. And in, in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And in chapter 3, it says, If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. And we just see it over and over. Therefore, in chapter 4, therefore, while the promises of entering our rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to fail to reach it. And so, again, in chapter 4, let us therefore strive to enter his rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And we see it over and over. And I counted 16 times through there. And, okay, unlike the Hebrews, we probably aren't tempted or we are not tempted to go to Judaism, right? That's not something that tempts us. But we would be naive to think that there is no risk of walking away from the faith like Joshua or like Marty. And so what we're going to do is we're going to dive into Hebrews and we're going to see what the author has to say about persevering in the faith. And we're going to see how we can apply it to our lives. So we will... See, in these 13 chapters, we'll see what the theme of the book is, and the theme is going to jump out us right at the beginning. The theme of Hebrews is Jesus is better. In every way, Jesus is better, his sacrifice, and his work is better. And we'll see that the purpose of the book is a call to persevere. So in, in seeing that Jesus is better, his work is better, how do we respond to this truth? Well, we keep going. We keep maturing. We keep striving in the faith. And so that's our three points. Our three points are, Mr. York would be proud, we persevere by reminding ourselves Jesus is better. We persevere by remembering Jesus' work. And lastly, we'll see we persevere by running the race together. And so first point, we persevere persevere by reminding ourselves, Jesus is better. And so right out of the gate, the author lets us know what he's going to be talking about. He lets us see what the theme is going to be all throughout. And so let's take a look at the first four verses together. So chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs." So as we come to the second part of verse 4, the author has selected his first, point of, his first point of comparison to establish that Jesus is better. And so that being the angel, so the first two chapters, we see over and over again, Jesus is greater than the angels. And he quotes and he expounds on the Psalms, on 2 Samuel, on Deuteronomy, 
the writer emphasizes, and we can take a look there at chapter 1, the writer emphasizes in verse 5 his sonship. In verse 6, we see that he is worthy of worship and actually tells the angels to worship the Lord. We see in verse 9, 8 through 9, that he, his rule, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of unrighteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. We see in verses 10 through 12, he is greater than the angels because of his eternality. It says, you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens were the work of your hands. So, of course, the creator of the universe, the one that has always been, the one that created them, is greater than them. And of the angels, he says that they are ministers. He says that they are messengers. And so the point of the, this comparison becomes clear. And I switched to the NIV because it was a little bit easier for me to understand and, um, when I read this. But at the beginning of chapter 3, it says, For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so such a great salvation? So what is he saying here? He's saying that the message spoken by the angels was binding because it was God's word to the people. The angels were the messengers of God. So, of course, the message that came was binding because it was God's word. But as we see and as we know, they couldn't keep it. That there was violations and there was disobedience, but whenever there is a disobedience to the word of God, whenever we violate God's command, there is punishment. And so there is punishment coming. There, God's wrath is coming. And he says, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? So the message has come. There's no escape because they have disobeyed. There's punishment how can you escape if we ignore such a great salvation? Jesus is the salvation, is the point of the author. And how are we going to escape if we ignore him? So the author is being very clear that the messenger, Jesus, is greater than these angelic messengers. And his message is better and of the utmost importance because there is salvation in Christ and his message. And perhaps the greatest news for us in Jesus's superiority over the angels is seen at the end of chapter 2. Look at verses 17 and 18. Jesus' superiority over the angels is found in his identification with man. That's us. And so in chapter 2, verses 16 through 18, we read, For surely it is not the angel that he helps, but he helps the offsprings of Abraham. That's us. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers, us, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And so the point that the author is making in the book of Hebrews is Jesus' function is much more than just an Aaron boy or the angels, he becomes the satisfactions of God's wrath for those who are being tempted. So his first point is, the angels announce God's word. He is God's final word. And he became one of us so that he may save us and help us. So he is the gospel. It's imperative that we hear the gospel. And just as it says in Hebrews 2.1, we must pay close attention to what we hear have heard, lest we drift away from it. 
And so that's his first point. Author's first point of comparison, Jesus is better. And who Jesus is better and so far than the angels. But let's keep going, let's keep looking and see the next point. And as we get through chapter three through seven, we're going to see two more comparisons that Jesus is compared to. And we're going to see that Jesus in chapter three is greater than Moses, which to us, we're like, yeah, that's okay. Like Moses isn't really my hero. Maybe he is, and that's good. But to the Jewish, these Jewish people, Moses was a big deal, right? He's the one that led them to their freedom. So we'll see that Jesus is greater than Moses, and we will see that he is greater than the Levitical priests. So in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, we read, Therefore, holy brothers, you, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, to testify the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. So the point here, he introduces Moses, and he is saying, starts off by saying, Jesus is greater just as a son is greater than the servant to a father. So is Jesus greater than Moses. And as we continue through verses 3 and into chapter 4, the author begins to highlight the disobedience of Israel um, towards Moses. So Moses leads them out of Egypt. He is taking them to the edge of the promised land, and they disobey God. And as we read earlier, anytime there's disobedient, there's punishment. And so the, dis, or the punishment for the Israelites disobeying Moses was 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And so the point that the author is making when he's comparing Jesus to Moses is Moses was sent by the Lord to deliver them from the slavery of the Egyptians. But Jesus was sent by the Lord to deliver us from the slavery of sin and death. And so he is warning them that Yes, you disobeyed Moses. Look what happened. Jesus is greater. The reward that Moses was offering was great. Or that God was offering Moses through Moses was great. The promised land. But there is something even greater being offered to us through Christ in this new covenant. And that is salvation. So just as, um, just as if you disobeyed Moses, there was punishment. And what he offered was great. What's being offered? Jesus is greater and more worthy to be obeyed. And if you disobey him, there are consequences as well. And so the point, Jesus is better. So Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Moses. And then his last comparison we see in chapters 4 through 7, and that is Jesus is better than the Levitical priest. And so the writer demonstrates that Jesus is greater than the Levitical priests, and he does this by showing that Christ is not from the line of Aaron, like the other Levitical priests were. He tells us in chapter 5, verse 9 through 10, that he is eternal in the line with Melchizedek. And so this is a little bit more, the point's clear, but his reasoning is a little bit more difficult, because we don't know who this Melchizedek is. We see him, well, let's read um, in verse 5. 
It says, once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be the high priest in order of Melchizedek. And he goes ahead and he describes Melchizedek again in chapter 7, verse 3. It says, without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. And so his point's going to be very, very clear. But it's kind of strange because we don't know who Melchizedek is. We see Melchizedek coming on the scene in Genesis with Abraham, and we know that Abraham gave 10% of everything. He tied to Melchizedek, saying that he recognized Melchizedek as greater than him. But who exactly Melchizedek was, where he comes from, we don't know. Now, it could be that he was just this really, really awesome priest, this really awesome righteous guy. That could be. Or there's also that he could possibly be the incarnate Christ and that Christ appeared to him, to Abraham in the Old Testament, which honestly I think that's more likely. But it's strange. So there's kind of a little bit of a mystery of who Melchizedek is. But the point that he is making is very, very clear. He is saying that Jesus is eternal. He is an eternal son of God and therefore he is an eternal priest. The old priests, they die. But death could not hold Jesus, so he can continue to intercede on our behalf. Jesus is the greater high priest, and in him we have a mediator. And even more, we have a, this high priest can sympathize with our weakness because he has been tempted in every way, but without sin. And so unlike former priests, and more importantly, unlike us, he is perfect. This is the kind of priest that we need. And this is the kind of priest that we have. And so let's pause. We have seen that Jesus is better than the angels. We see that Jesus is better than Moses. And we see that he is better than this line of priests that they have had. And honestly, we, us, we probably don't need to be convinced that Jesus is greater than angels. We probably do not need to be convinced that Jesus is better than Moses. That's not a temptation for us. We don't need to be convinced that Jesus is a better priest than what they had in the Old Testament. All right? It would not make our lives any easier if we became Jews. We wouldn't return to Judaism. We don't face persecution by not being Jews. So we don't have the exact one-to-one -one like corresponding to what the what this book had to the Hebrews obviously but there is still something that we need to hear we need to be reminded that Jesus is better we need to be reminded that Jesus is worth it and so maybe it's not returning to Judaism maybe it's not converting to another religion but we need to hear that Jesus is better Jesus is better than our bank account how much money that we have. Jesus is better than our home and where we live and the comforts that this world provides. Jesus is better than any nation on this earth. He is better than any political with any political affiliation that you might have. Jesus is better than any relationship. He's better than your spouse. He is better than your kids. He is better than your hobby. He is better than sex. He is better than any sin that may be. He is better than any temptation that threatens to take 
over as the number one priority in your life. We need to hear that. This is how C.S. Lewis puts it. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. He says, We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. And so, brothers, don't settle for junk when you can have Jesus. He is worth the sacrifice. He is worth the persecution. He is what, whatever hardship, whatever comes our way, he is worth following to our dying breath. So like the Hebrews, we need to hear Keep going, keep striving, keep running, keep enduring. Don't turn back. Don't turn this way or that way. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And so, first seven chapters, we see Jesus is a greater ruler than the angels. He is a greater prophet of God than Moses. He is, in fact, a greater high priest than any that have ever descended from Abraham. And having seen him as prophet, priest, and king, let's look at, turn from who he is and look at what he has done. So number two, first, we persevere by um, reminding ourselves of who Jesus is, realizing that he's better. And second, we persevere by remembering Jesus' work. And so as we go through the next two chapters, we're seeing a shift um, and we're seeing an emphasis put on Christ's work and so the author just emphasized in chapter 7 that Christ is the greater high priest. And so what's his point in doing this? So let's read um, in chapters 8, verses 1 through 6. What is the point? Now the point is this. What we are saying, we have, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for the priest also to have something to offer. Now, if we were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to law. But they serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he instructed God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was, which was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he med uh, mediates is better, since it, in, it is enacted on better promises. And so here, as we're getting into chapter 8, we're getting to the climax of the book. He wants us to know that this high priest, just as the old, priests, uh, just as the old priest gave gifts and they gave sacrifices, now does this new high priest has something to offer as well, something much better. And what he gives is different from what the old priest gave. The author calls this, in the book of Hebrews, the new covenant. And so the old covenant was meant to direct God and to eliminate our sinful state. The law, as we've seen in these verses, was the shadow of things to come. It was symbolic. But in contrast, the point of the new covenant New Covenant is to transform the mind and to transform the heart. 
So look at me in, with verse 8. He's quoting Jeremiah 31. Um, and let's skip down to, I think, 10 maybe. It says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward the iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And so the sacrifices of the Old Covenant, ceremonial, they were symbolic. They were supposed to, they were supposed to point to Christ. But the sac in Hebrews 10 we read, But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins, because it's impossible for the bloods of bulls and goats to take away sin. So you have the sacrifices in the Old Covenant that were supposed to be ceremonial, but the sacrifices in the New Covenant are supposed to are moral. It has the power to actually change our hearts, the taking out of the heart of stone and the heart, replace it with the heart of flesh. And then we're getting into the really good part. Read with me in Hebrews 10, 12 and 14. And so... The author writes, But when the priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And so the covenant Christ gives is much superior than what he has given through Moses. Right? And the reason that it is superior, and the reason that it is even possible, it's because of the sacrifice that was given. Right? Jesus in the New Covenant is that sacrifice, and his sacrifice not only was effective, we're going to see that it was permanent. Look with me, this is in chapter 9, and look at the language that's used. In chapter 9, in verse 12, it says, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by the, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood thus in securing eternal redemption. And then in verse 26, it says, But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Christ, by the sacrifice of himself. And then in verse 28, chapter 9, verse 28, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, and then in 10.10 we see that, Behold, I have come to do your will, he does away with the first, first covenant, um, in order to establish the second, new covenant. And by that, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And so here you hear, once for all, once for all. Have you been offered once, once for all? So this is a single action that Christ has done. It's not repeated, unlike the Levitical priests in the old covenant where daily rituals, annual day of atonement, Christ's sacrifice was once and for all. And so this is why we strongly, Southern Baptists, strongly disagree with the Roman Catholic idea of Mass. Because whenever they teach that communion is a re-sacrifice of Christ. They teach that whenever you take communion offering of Christ's sacrifice. But as we just seen, as we read here, we don't need to repeat Christ's sacrifice week after week because we understand that his work on the cross is over. It's finished. It's accomplished. 
And as the author of Hebrew points out, whereas the priests of the Old Testament are continually standing at their work, continually offering sacrifices day after day after day, year after year after year, what did Christ do when he offered his? He sat down. And so, why did he sit down? His work was done. It was completed. His one sacrifice was sufficient. There's nothing else that needs to be put forward for us. Millions and millions of sacrifices by the Levitical priest don't even begin to touch the surface on the sufficiency and the worth and the efficacy, I can't say that word, efficacy, of the sacrifice that Christ put forth once and for all. Once, one sacrifice is what all that it takes for salvation. And he saved tons of boats and boat of bulls and goats as well. And so, that is why he sat down. Why is Christ's work able to be permanent? It's because he was the perfect sacrifice. Imperfect priests could only offer temporary sacrifices, but the perfect Christ could offer a once-for-all sacrifice. And so, how do we persevere? We persevere by constantly reminding ourselves Jesus is better. We persevere that remembering Jesus' work on our behalf. He sacrificed himself once for all, and it is sufficient. And lastly, we persevere by running this race together. So you guys know we, we returned from Argentina. Well, this last year, we accomplished something pretty awesome as a family. We decided that we were going to run a 5K to, together. And actually, it's a load of baloney. It was actually a 6K, which I wasn't happy about. I wasn't happy about the 5K, but it was actually a 6K. And so we run this, we decided to run this together as a family. And when I say, if, when I say that we decided to run this together as a family, what I am saying is Crystal signed us up for a 5K. And then after the fact, she let us know that we were running this together as a family. And so we signed up. And for three weeks, or three times a week, sorry, for three times a week, we would go to the park and we would run. I mean, faithfully, at least three times a week, we would go, we would run. It was called Couch to 5K, I think, was the program that we're doing. And so honestly, some days... We're better than others. You know, it was, there were days I didn't want to go. I didn't want to run. I wanted to quit, right? Just like the Hebrew, I wanted to return to the couch. <laughs> but Crystal was always there to encourage us. <laughs> and so on the runs, Crystal running with her app constantly would be saying, come on, guys, keep going. We're almost there. Keep running. Keep going. We can do it. Let's go. And Maya would come up beside me and she would say, Dad, this stinks. <laughs> I can't do it. I'm sore. I'm tired. Let's do this together. Let's talk about something. I can do it if you run with me. And so that kept me going, right? Because she wanted to keep going. She wanted me to keep going. So I was encouraged. I need to keep going so that she keeps going. We need to finish this together. And then... So naturally, you're thinking, well, Malachi's next, right? Malachi, 50 pounds, seven years old at the time. 
at the time, seven years old, play soccer multiple times a week. This kid can run forever. And so he does fit into the analogy, though, a little bit. So he's usually in front, but there were days, like any, as you can imagine, any seven-year-old boy, he did not want to run. And whenever a seven-year-old boy decides he doesn't want to do something, it makes it difficult. And so likewise, Malachi also had to be encouraged to keep going. Now, sometimes encouragement wasn't enough. He needed a warning (laughs) that you better keep going or, but he needed to be encouraged or he needed to be warned to run as well. So the point is this, race day, we cross the finish line together. And maybe we could have done it individually. I don't know. I don't, I don't like, I, Crystal's probably the only one that could have done it individually. But we didn't have to do it individually. We did it together as a family. And together, we made it. And that is what the Christian life is supposed to be like. It's not supposed, and that's how he ordained it, right? It's not, it's us running the race together as a family, as a church, running it together. We don't have to run the race on our own. And so look at me in chapter 10, verses 19 through 23, 19 through 24, and we're going to see all three, all three of our points in these five little verses. We're going to see Jesus, we're going to see his work, and we're going to see that we're supposed to do this together. Starting, so chapter 10, verse 19 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, there's his work. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, there's Jesus and his work, let us, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean, from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised, there's Jesus again, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good words, works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So you see Jesus, you see his work, and you see that we're supposed to do it together. We're supposed to run this race together. And he's going to make the same point, almost, I mean, it's identical point, different words, but identical point in chapter 12. And sandwiched in between these two very similar voices, two similar verses of Jesus, his work, and running it together, we have the heroes of the faith. We have the hall of faith in which the author goes through in chapter 11. He reminds his he reminds the Hebrews, he reminds who the book was written to, that these different heroes of the faith, Abel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, an honorable mention for Gideon, Barak, Samson, Japheth, David, Samuel, and all the prophets, reminding them of the ones who ran the race before them, how they lived lives of service and faithfulness to the Lord's ones who persevered until the end to imitate them, to do as they did. And then we get to chapter 12, one through, t- one through two, and it says, therefore, since we are surrounded by a so great a cloud of witnesses, these heroes of the faith, so referring back to chapter 11, let us also 
lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So we see it again. Jesus, what he's done for us, do it together. And so look to Jesus. He is better. Look to his work. Follow, your, follow these heroes. Imitate them. Lay aside the sin. Run the race. Complete the race. Do it faithfully. And so we run this race together, stirring one up another, stirring one another up, meeting together, encouraging one another. We keep running. So that's Hebrews. That's Hebrews. Jesus is better, better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the priest. His work is better. His covenant is better. It is because that covenant was brought in by a perfect once-for-all sacrifice by giving himself. And so in view of Jesus, in view of his work, we keep going in the faith. We don't fall away and we persevere. So I want to conclude in this way. So obviously, there are two types of people in this sanctuary. Christians, non-Christians, believer, unbeliever. I mean, no doubt, you either fit into one of these categories. And so for the believer, I hope that the message was clear. I hope that we see that we need to keep running. We need to keep fighting. We need to keep persevering. We need to constantly remind yourself, and we need to remind others Jesus is better. Don't settle for the mud pies when you can have Jesus himself. We constantly remember Jesus' work. We preach it to ourselves. We preach it to one another. We remember the cross. We remember the resurrection. We remember the promises and how we can trust in this faithful priest. And we keep running together as the family of God, encouraging one another to keep going like Christ. Keep going, keep going, keep going, keep pressing on until we have fought the good fight and we have finished the race. Now, for the if there's anyone here who does not know Christ, and this is actually, we need to hear this too as believers. We need to hear the gospel and remind ourselves of the gospel too. But I'm not sure of many things, but the one thing I am sure of, Jesus is better, right? Jesus is better than anything that, any, that you could possibly hold dear in your life. And you can know him. You don't have to settle for mud pies. That is how he made it. See, it was, it was hopeless for man because God requires perfection. If you want to go to heaven, you have to be perfect. And the problem is, we're far from that. You're far from perfect. I'm far from perfect. But God requires perfection. And see, that's where Jesus comes in. He took on the flesh. He became man. He lived the perfect life, the life that we could not live. And then he took upon himself sin because God is just, God is holy, and he must punish sin. And that's why we call Christ the satisfaction of God's wrath because he took the sin upon himself. He took the, the punishment from God and he died. He satisfied that wrath by dying on the cross in the place of sinners. And the result is what, who, who called it this morning, Luther? The great exchange where our sin was put upon Christ. He died for us. His righteousness 
his perfection was given to us. Or 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Unfair, I know, but this is what Jesus did. This is how he demonstrated his love towards us, by dying for us while we were yet sinners. And perhaps you're saying, well, I want to trust in Christ. I want to follow Christ. But if you only knew, if you only knew what I've done, if you only knew what I think, if you only knew what I struggle with. But there's one other thing that I'm sure of from Hebrews and that that Jesus' work is greater than you could possibly imagine. That his grace is mightier. His grace is greater than your sin. And as we sang earlier, although your sins may be many, his mercy is more. And so you can know him today. You can be forgiven. So I beg you, if you don't know the Lord, or you have questions of what it means to follow the Lord, then I know Pastor Rob, myself, and many brothers and sisters in here that would love nothing more than to talk to you on how you can know Christ. And so that's it, church. Keep pressing on. Keep running and persevere because we know that Jesus is better and he's worth it.